Welcome to the Great British Foreign Affairs Podcast, hosting insightful conversations with fascinating people to shape the way that Britain interacts with the world. It's an honor to jointly host this episode with the Story of Women podcast by Anna Stockline, which features interviews with those who explore our world through the female gaze. And together, we're delighted to talk about feminist foreign policy with Christina Lunds, the author of The Future of Foreign Policy is Feminist and co-founder and director of the Center for Feminist Foreign Policy in Berlin. Hi, Christina. We're honestly so happy to have you with us. And I wanted to jump in and start to begin with by asking you to tell us a bit about yourself, your background, and how you came to be a leading voice on feminist foreign policy. Hi, um, I'm so excited to be here and to be talking to you about the topic, feminist foreign policy. I mean, my favorite topic in the world, kind of. (laughs) Um, So I'm Christina. I'm one of the two co-founders of the Center for Feminist Foreign Policy. We're based here in Berlin. Um, I am an author of, I've written one book so far, it's called The Future of Foreign Policy is Feminist currently writing on my second book um and i'm an activist i've been doing a feminist activism for the past 10 years roughly so i i come from the countryside in germany um lovely small village with 80 people working class family and um and started studying at some point psychology and then international politics in the uk because I was lucky enough to get scholarships. Um, and from then I started kind of getting really fascinated about, about topics around social justice, feminism, um, human rights. Um, and so I, yeah, I kind of got really into very many books and into the lectures. And then I guess 10 years ago, pretty much was when I first got really angry when I learned about dynamics such as, you know, when we know that whenever a group of a group of people um, is um, objectified and sexualization can be one type of objectifying people, this leads to the dehumanization of these people, and a dehumanization always leads to an increased level of of violence towards that group of people. And we have this massive objectification, sexualization with women in our society. Women still in lots of uh, kind of media and culture and, and, and art and pop culture are sexualized, are portrayed as objects. And that was also, or is, has been the case in Europe's largest newspaper. It's a German tabloid. Um, and... When I back then went home for summer break and I saw the newspaper lying in front of me at the gas station when I was paying and it asked its readers to rate Germany's most beautiful cleavage and it had the pictures only of really well-known, successful, accomplished German famous women, um, I got extremely furious because I knew that I knew that in Germany every day a man tries to kill his partner or ex-partner and every third day he succeeds and I know that every one in three women also in Germany experiences significant forms of male violence. And we know all the facts. Um, 
And we know that male violence, um, there's like this huge impunity around male violence in all our societies. So I got really, really angry and started my very first campaign against that big tabloid newspaper. Um, and then over the years, I was involved in all sorts of feminist activism um, with regards to kind of changing the German law on rape in 2016, no means no, um, and a and, and lot more. And then... I also continued my studies in diplomacy, international politics, um, started working internationally, amongst others, in Colombia for a feminist organization, and then um, at the UN, in at UNDP in New York and in Myanmar, in Myanmar at the height at the height of the genocide um, of the Burmese military against the um, Muslim minority minority of the Rohingya. And I kept wondering, I kept wondering about priorities. Um, I kept wondering about how money is allocated and I kept wondering about whose voices we're not listening to. And um, I kept wondering about priorities in foreign policy making, such as kind of militarized security and economic interests, when at the same time we know that militarized security by no means just keeps everyone safe. But we know that it's feminist movements and um, and more women's and human rights that will ultimately make the world a safer place and will reduce the likelihood of wars and conflicts. But instead, worldwide, we have seen this continuous trend of more money being allocated to militarized spending. So that really got me more and more curious about this. And when I learned about Margot Wallström back then, the former Swedish foreign minister, and that she announced a feminist foreign policy in her country, the first country in the world in 2014 to do so, I was extremely curious. And then four years later, um, started the Center for Feminist Foreign Policy um, with my co-founder Nina here in Berlin. Amazing. That is quite the background. Uh, really, really incredible. And we'll get more into your work specifically, but I think it'd be helpful in the very beginning to kind of set the scene um, and help our listeners understand, you know, what even is feminist foreign policy? So feminist foreign policy, it's, I'd say it's the attempt to really revolutionize how foreign and security policymaking is being conducted. So a traditional understanding of foreign and security policy um, is underpinned by this so-called realist paradigm of international relations, which tells us that all states are in anarchy towards each other because there's no supranational government. And when this is the case, um, every country, all leaders in the world want to gain more relative power, more power over other countries, more power over other people. Um, and this is mainly done by militarizing their countries. Um, and in the past, kind of this thinking also justified imperialism and colonialism. And, um, and so this understanding, which also puts economic interest um, above other, um, other, other, um, other aspects of foreign policy making, such as, um, peacemaking or human rights, um, this is a narrative that so many of us um, who work in that area know that it will not lead to um, sustainable peace because we know from research that the most significant factor towards whether a country is peaceful within its own borders or towards other countries is the level of 
gender equality. Um, so feminist foreign policy then is is kind of this attempt to put this tradition of foreign policy making these ideas about military strength and economic interests and the centrality of the state and the state's interest um, on its head and says, okay, no, 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 we really need to get um, get this right and put human rights, um, the advancement of um, women's rights, human rights, queer rights, um, and a decolonial foreign policy at the center of all foreign policy making globally, because according to empirical data, it's the only way where how we can achieve lasting peace globally. Mm, amazing. And um, digging into that a little bit deeper, you know, on, on my podcast and every episode, we look at some part of the world, some different system, institution through the female gaze, you know, from a woman's perspective. So the economy, healthcare, foreign policy and, um, and understanding any of it. I always love to go back first and kind of figure out how we got here. And you started to dabble into this a little bit in terms of, you know, the first time you kind of saw it come up, you know, it's a relatively newer um, thing that people are talking about, but I think it'd be helpful um, to hear a little bit about the history of where feminist foreign policy thinking came from and how it's kind of developed since then. Oh, I love the question because it's such a beautiful history and such a rich hist history. Mm-hmm. Although um, I guess it's not that well known, so I'm always happy when I can talk about it. Um, in my book, The Future Foreign Policy is Feminist, I am dedicating a whole chapter th- to that because it's also, to me personally, it's important to really um, kind of show um, the shoulders that we're all standing on who are working on feminist foreign policy these days. Um so feminist foreign policy, in my book, I argue that it goes back at least to 1915, maybe maybe even earlier, um, but this is kind of the traces that I found. So 1915, um, during the First World War, um, more than 1,000 women feminists met in The Hague in, in the Netherlands for the very first Women's Peace Congress. And at this conference... Um, they not only demanded an end to the First World War, but they also published um, or announced, published, wrote down 20 resolutions, um, which they really saw necessary for a new global order. So what they did with those 20 resolutions was nothing um, short of trying to design a new global order, understanding at the in the midst of a of a, a, a huge war that we cannot continue like this. So in those resolutions, for example, they demanded peace education for everyone. They demanded an international organization um, for uh, a, a court of arbitration um, for all kinds of disputes, also for economic disputes. They demanded an end to the uh, military-industrial complex um, they had so many fantastic ideas for the international order, which at the time back then, at a time when in almost all countries in the world, women were not allowed to vote, um, those women were barely listened to, even though they met the then US president and the Pope and ministers and prime ministers um, all over Europe. Um, but over the decades, we can see that with the founding of the League of Nations and then the UN and the establishment of the Court of Justice and um, and the uh, the World um, Trade Organization um, and many 
um, other important pillars of the current international system, their ideas and visions were actually um, put into reality. And so those women um, back then who were also strongly um, excluded from the um, from the Paris Peace Conference then in 1919, um, they tried all they can to influence um, international policymaking, but it was a time when the exclusion of women, and especially feminist pacifist voices, was very, very heavy. Um, and so over the years and decades, they uh, continued being engaged and organized. Um, the 1915 conference in The Hague and then the follow-up conference um, 1919 um, in, um, in Zurich um, were really also the founding blocks of the Women's International League for Peace and Freedom, one of the um, most relevant organizations on women's rights and international and, and foreign policy. Um, so this is kind of the 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 back history and then over the decades these in, in in the tradition of the women from the Hague and the feminists from the Hague important achievements were made internationally um during the UN decade of the women um in the 70s and then the big conferences in Nairobi and um Copenhagen and Mexico City and then um with the ratification um of the 1979 UN convention on um, the CEDAW, the Convention on the Elimination of All Forms of Discrimination Against Women. Then in 2000, for example, I'm just picking out, out a couple of examples. Um, in 2000, something very important happened at the UN Security Council. Um, the um, Resolution 1325, which might be one of the most well-known resolutions of the UN Security Council, um, was... Um, um, uh, was brought into the um, Security Council and um, it was the very first resolution in the Security Council which acknowledges that the situation of women globally might have anything to do with um, global security and global peace. So this resolution in the year 2000 called 1325 formed the start of the Women, Peace and Security Agenda. Um, by now, in total, we have 10 resolutions um, within the Women, Peace and Security Agenda. And all these bits and pieces, the conventions and resolutions and, um, and the activism um, was the theoretical or also practical um, basis on which, for example, Margot Wallström in 2014 was able to announce a feminist foreign policy for her country. And when Sweden did so, when they announced the feminist foreign policy, they they said, okay, our feminist foreign policy means that we focus on three R's. That is rights, human rights for everyone, women's, like the advancement of women's rights, resources, so putting money um, to the advancement of women's rights and um, and, and topics topics of justice and representation. So fair representation of women in all areas of power and foreign policy making in general. Yeah, I love I love that history. And I feel like it's so interesting because there's this fascinating start to the thinking. Then there's this real evolution where it's taken seriously at a global level and you see the UN Security Council and other forums recognizing and adopting 
principles and approaches. Um, and then there's something even more recently that you've touched on with Sweden, right, where a whole set of a growing number of countries have adopted feminist foreign policy commitments and approaches. And I wondered if you could tell us a bit more about that. And also, what are the principles you're seeing through those different countries adopting this approach that other countries should be thinking about? Mm -hmm. So, yeah, it's actually been a pretty success story over the past couple of years since Sweden announced its feminist foreign policy. Other countries were really inspired and um, and stepped in the footsteps of Sweden. So by now, depending on, um, on how you count and how critical you are, there are between 11 and 14 countries that have a feminist foreign policy. Um, that officially have a feminist foreign policy. There's always a, a big difference between what they announce and what they actually do. Um, so we have, for example, um, Canada and France um, and Luxembourg and Germany and Mexico and um, Colombia and Spain. Um, um, yeah, many countries over the past years announced a feminist foreign policy. And many of them actually, if not all, let me think, let's say most of them, um, also adopted the Swedish model of the three R's or somehow. So, yeah, many of them focus on the three R's. Some of them at another R um, or Germany adds a D for diversity. Um, but the Swedish model really, uh, yeah, um, really is kind of widespread within the countries that officially have a feminist run policy. And what these countries do, so for example, let's focus on Germany. Germany in in end of 2001, in their coalition agreement of the current government, when the government was formed, they announced they would do a feminist run policy. So they um, took roughly a year for consultations um, with civil society organizations. We were, we, the Center for Feminist Foreign Policy, were involved as well um, to, uh, to look at um, economic policies, but also peace and security, um, peace building, um, um, to better understand what they could actually do. And when Germany on the 1st of March last year, in 2023, um, presented their guidelines, their strategy on feminist foreign policy. Um, it's actually really, really good. It's it addresses. It also addresses, for example, Germany's um, colonial past. It talks about um, the need for arms control to advance women's rights. And I'm mentioning these two topics because it's very often and very easily two topics that are. Um, kind of brushed under the carpet by feminist foreign policy countries because it's two of the tougher ones, but um, topics that are so important for us, civil society, feminist civil society, who are working on the topic. Um, Germany, for example, announced it wants to increase within um, a few years um, the the share of their international funding that goes to uh, projects that somehow focus on gender equality or women's rights um, substantially. Uh, substantially. Um, Germany um, has a couple of um, um, concrete projects which they apparently they say they do because of the feminist foreign policy. That includes, for example, a um, financially supporting an organization that um, has that, that works in 
in in Iraq with the um, Yazidi minority um, um, who suffered from the genocide against the Yazidi. Um, it involves, for example, supporting our organization um, to do a, a project on um, the how human rights defenders can be supported in authoritarian regimes. Um, Germany um, also um, um, built or included a small, it's really small, um, new department. Yeah, department is a big word, but um, at least created some positions within the foreign ministry um, to look at different forms of diversity, which includes fair representation between men and women, but also um, this, um, disability rights um, and the, the, the queer community and so forth. Um, so there's, I mean, I guess then also, uh, so Germany currently has the very first female foreign minister in its over 150 years history. Um And she she's great. Like she really is a feminist at heart. Um, and at the same time, of course, things are being done sometimes with regards to when it comes to selling weapons um, um, and other aspects. Well, I'm personally wondering where the feminism is in those aspects. Um, and it's for us sometimes as civil society, feminist civil society, really, it's it's our task, I believe to find the balance between supporting governments that are brave enough um, to do a feminist foreign policy, because in a world that is becoming more and more authoritarian, where 72% of the world's population live in authoritarian-led countries, um, it is brave to do something differently. And at the same time, of course, we do not want for governments um, to do pinkwashing. Um, so we need to find the right balance between supporting and um, criticizing And yeah, and, and just hoping and working with everyone possible who's generally interested in making a difference because as it stands now with the current trend of more and more wars and conflicts, we had a doubling of wars and conflicts between 2010 and 2020. We had um, numbers of refugees worldwide has tripled between 2010 and last year. Um, We had a doubling of people killed um, in conflicts and wars, and that this number, that's also between 2010 and 2020, does not include um, the war in Gaza. Um, and so the international trend towards more and more authoritarianism, towards more and more militarization, towards more and more attacks of the international human rights system and less funding for human rights defenders and civil society, this is hugely troubling and urgent so um yeah we need more and more actors we're implementing feminist values to do something different and better mm, and i love how you've just summed that up that there's a bravery but there's also challenges around adopting feminist foreign policy and that debate and that interaction a government and leaders talking to civil society learning from history constantly striving to improve together is so valuable and so important and that's one of the reasons why I'm delighted to have you on this podcast because I think in the UK but also in many other countries that haven't yet adopted a feminist foreign policy 
there's a real invitation for people across the political spectrum, people involved in foreign policy, to grapple and understand more of the history, more of the principles, more of the debates, more of the opportunity for impact and opportunity for change and opportunity for different vision of the future. And so you've given us a little taste (laughs) and I hope that that whets some people's appetite that haven't delved much into this topic to look into it more. Anna, do you want to come in just on a last quick question? Yeah, yeah. I think it's um, always nice to end with a little bit of hope, looking forward into the future. So we'd just love to know, know, what are your hopes for this year, for 2024, for the advances in feminist foreign policy? And perhaps you could also add, we know that you've recently got your English translation out of your first book. Uh, Tell people how they can find that, perhaps what your second book is on, (laughs) and particularly how they can follow more on this topic and delve into it a bit more. So my hopes for this year are that with the multiple urgencies that we're seeing in the world from wars and conflicts and the climate emergency um, and as I said before more militarization and more authoritarian regimes and it's super election year it's the biggest election year in history actually this year so my hopes are that people take away from this urgency that we cannot continue with business with politics as usual but that we urgently need to put human rights, women's rights, minority rights um, at the core of all policymaking and in foreign policy. This this means it's it must be feminist foreign policy because we have fantastic concepts in feminist foreign policy already to achieve all of what I just mentioned before. So my hopes are that um, from the urgency people really across the globe wake up and demand better policymaking. Um, so uh, and in and, and my book, thank you for mentioning it. Um, yes, it, it was published in German um, almost two years ago, actually on the day that Putin started his um, full-scale war against Ukraine. And then a year later, it was updated with new chapters on Iran and um, in Ukraine. And this updated version was just published in, in the UK and the US last autumn. So the future foreign policy is feminist. It's available everywhere where books are being sold. And I'd be so happy if some of the readers, of course, would get that book. Lots of my my heart and our work here at the Center for Feminist Foreign Policy is um, is in that book. Amazing. And what's your second book on, or is oh, it great. a secret? <laughs> yeah, no. um, I mean, I have not publicly shared with anyone yet, but as you're asking, <laughs> it, it's on empathy and resistance and how I argue that we need both empathy and resistance to make the world better place. It's about yeah, standing your moral ground when the uh, when times are tough. Um, yeah, this is what it's going to be about. It will come out later this year. Wow, it sounds amazing. And can people uh, follow you or the, your centre on social media? How can people find you? <laughs> Thank you for that. Um, yes, please do so. You can find me on LinkedIn and Instagram mainly. I'm very lazy on Twitter, on X, and not on TikTok. So Instagram and LinkedIn, Christina Lunds, Christina with a K, and also the Center for Feminist Foreign Policy. You'll also find on those platforms. 
So yeah, please um, come follow and send me a message if you do. That's amazing. Thank you, Christina. Thank you so much. What an amazing inspiration for the beginning of 2024. And we wish you all the best with your ongoing work to achieve those aims in 2024. (laughs) Thanks, Christina. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Great British Foreign Affairs Podcast, where Britain meets the world. Subscribe today, share it with a friend or colleague, and be part of shaping Britain's role on the global stage.